The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the program. It's almost the first program of a new year. We're a week away from that. And that, that's cra crazy to me that we're talking about 2021. Um, but we are winding up 2020. So I hope everybody is uh, taking a moment to reflect on the entire year. It's been a very, very strange one between politics and pandemics and just the change in uh, behavior that the pandemics have brought on. I mean, things that will never return to what we would consider to be normal. Some of that's good, though. Some of it is actually quite good, but uh, some of it isn't. Um, and we're just going to have to see how all that unfolds as the uh, as things start to get normal. People are now getting the vaccination. Yeah, I, uh, uh, you know, things should be starting to scroll back to normal. That's what we're hoping for. Um, I hope you had a great Christmas. I really do. The other, uh, what well, was a Christmas Eve? Uh, during the day, I had a last-minute bit of inspiration. And those of the, you who caught the show on uh, Christmas Eve night know that um, I went back and pulled a bunch of our skits and our comedy uh, stuff that we had done over the course of the first couple years of the program. Stuff that we just haven't, I, oh, I haven't had much of an opportunity to do recently. But we used, we used to spend a lot of time, I wrote a lot of comedy stuff and spent a lot of time producing it and editing it and getting it to the point where it was something presentable. And I thought it'd be fun to share it. And as I started listening to that, I was, I was cracking up. But one thing I did realize is that when you hear them back to back to back, like uh, all the uh, Harry Butts uh, interviews, back to back to back, it, it's a little overwhelming. Um, but when you hear one every month or so, like we were doing back when they were new, uh, they, you know, they, it wasn't quite the same effect. So, uh, but it was a lot of fun revisiting all that, all the Crapco commercials, uh, Faki. Who else did we have on? Um, well, the, the songs that Jason and I did for Christmas, that kind of stuff. It was a lot of fun. So I hope, I hope you got some enjoyment out of it, out of it as well. I didn't expect a lot of people to tune in. It was Christmas Eve, uh, for gosh sakes. But it's there. It's on. It's on the YouTube channel, so anybody can visit it and check it out if they had, didn't get a chance to listen before. It's, um, yeah, it's it was the Christmas Eve special, so I hope you enjoyed it. Welcome to everybody in our chat room. Always good to see you all there. I consider you to my friends and my family here on Beyond Reality, and it's always good to see uh, all your names flowing through the chat room. If you're not sure where the chat room is, I recommend that you um, check out our YouTube channel because that's where the chat room is. Please subscribe if you're at the YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search for JV Johnson and subscribe because... Um, it's there's no fee or anything for that. Also, Twitch channel is available for subscriptions or just following. Either way, I appreciate you to do one of those two things and be part of our Twitch community as well. That Twitch community is our weekend program. I mentioned Booze, Brews, and Bros on Friday. It will not be on the YouTube channel. It will be on the Twitch channel. Or it will be on the YouTube channel for Booze, Brews, and Bros, but not, not mine, not the JV Johnson one, just to make it more complicated for everybody. So we're going to go to break, and when we come back, we'll bring our guest in, Scott Mitchell. He's a pastor. We're going to be talking about secrets of the Bible. We'll be talking about the angelic world before mankind. We'll talk about angels and UFOs, how they're related. We'll talk about angelic and alien genetic manipulation of humans, and we'll talk about giants. These are all great things 
to start the week off with on Beyond Reality, and we'll be right back. Don't go away. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, tonight, we're going to be talking about something very, very interested, interesting. We're talking about uh, the secrets in the Bible with Pastor Scott Mitchell. He is a uh, mind-opening Bible teacher and the host of Bible Mysteries podcast. He's been a student of the Bible, Bible history, and Bible mysteries for 40 years. His careers have spanned music, legal support, and technology, and he currently pastors Grace Family Bible Church in Seguin, Texas. Did I say the name of that town right, Scott? Is it Seguin or Seguin? We actually say Seguin, but you okay. came closer than most. <laughs> well, it is a tricky one. <laughs> um, it is. And and what a resume. You you were in the music business, your legal support. I mean, you've done you've done a lot of stuff in in uh, in your career here. Yeah, I used to tour professionally as a musician back in the 80s. Oh, wow. And a stenographer and taking depositions and legal testimony in courtrooms. And then finally I faced this call to preach and took my vow of poverty. (laughs) Well, let me ask you this, because um, this isn't what you're on the program for, but I too am a musician. I haven't toured professionally, but I do have a band and I play gigs or back in the day when we could play gigs a year ago. Um, But uh, so I'm curious about it. What did you play and what kind of music? Well, I used to tour um, back in the 80s with uh, about the only artist you may have ever heard of was Louise Mandrell. And I, was a, I was a guitar player. I was a lead guitarist for her group. Um, I played for many different people over the years, but I, I currently now just play jazz. I grew up oh, in wow. South Louisiana, so the jazz influence was huge for me. Wow. So Louise Mandrell is a country artist, right? She was, yes. She is. Wow, um, that's the, uh, I'm I'm really impressed by that actually, and I'm glad you're still playing too because uh, you know once that's in your blood, it, you don't ever want it to leave, and in some cases you can't get it to leave. You just got to play. I'll take a sabbatical here and there where I won't play for a few months, and then I just it burns me up, and I got to get playing again. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Well, I still play pretty actively. My I'm blessed to have a wife who's a fantastic singer. Oh, nice. And we actually have a jazz combo. So even oh, though wow. 2020 and the COVID gave us a, a real strong hit on gigs, we still plan to pick that up again. Good for you. Well, that's that's terrific to hear. Now, let, now tell us about the transition from all of that stuff to, um, you, as you said, you got the calling. You, 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 you heard the message. You knew what your new mission was going to be. How did that happen for you? You know, it's a really interesting thing because when I was very young, um, I I grew up in a family that was not a church-attending family by any shape or form. We didn't go to a church unless somebody died or got married. And But I had a grandfather that would occasionally take me to um, a church that he attended when I was young, and that was about my only exposure to religion. But um, when I was uh, a little bit older, I began to have nightmares, and they were very strange dreams, and they usually involved something that was sort of satanic or demonic, and I didn't understand them. Oh, wow. Yeah, and they were just – I would wake up disturbed and sweating and, and whatever. But finally, about age 15 or 16 or so, I had a, I had a sister that was dating a young guy in, in high school, 
And uh, his father was a pastor and a Bible teacher. And she said, you know, you really ought to come to this Bible class. And I began to go. And he just happened to be teaching on demonology. And he was speaking about the things in the Bible that actually revealed who Satan and the devils were. And once I, it's kind of like, you know, knowledge erases fear. Once I saw that, the dream stopped and I had a piece about it. So I have to ask you this, in retrospect, as you look back on those days, having those dreams before you came to terms with them, what do you think was was uh, fueling them? What, can you point your finger to anything? I honestly think that there's a spiritual realm out there that if they can draw you in to their side, we'll call it the dark side, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. um, if they can draw you in, they'll do it. And I think they try to get children when they're young. Uh, and and uh, I've even read biographies of people that even grew up and became, you know, warlocks and witches and sorcerers and things like that, that sure. later on became Christians who, who attest to almost the same thing. And I think they were, they were sort of a battle for me. There was like, since I had no real Christian or church foundation, they probably thought I was ripe for the picking. And uh, I think that fortunately I was able to see some truth before they got to me. So let's talk about that for a second. They they saw you as an easy mark or something of the sorts. They started to fuel these dreams in with you inside you, which, you, as you described, said they were they were terrifying or they were scary, and you you would wake up and confused and frightened by these things. Is that their normal mo? Is do they use fear to try to draw bring people to them? You know, Satan has so many devices, and, and sure, he would do that, because the, the typical caricature of the devil that people grow up imagining is this red-horned figure with the bifurcated tail right, and a hay right. fork, you know? And and that's really not what he looks like. He's He's actually a created being that God made to be one of the brightest creatures in heaven. He's a cherub. And so if he can... Um, deceive you into thinking this boogeyman type figure is him, and you run in the opposite direction into his open arms, that's one of those tricks that he can use. And I think he fools a lot of people that way. So you're having these dreams as a young man, and you um, are invited to a a Bible uh, class, and that class happens to be about demonology at the time. Do you think Mm -hmm. there's there's fate involved there? I absolutely believe God was involved in it. You know, uh, I believe in something called divine discontent. Mm-hmm. And when uh, it's a it's a phrase coined by C.S. Lewis, but when when you feel like something's just missing in your life and you're not sure where to go, that's usually when God is there, kind of saying, "Hey, I've been here all along. I'm waiting for you." You know, and sometimes we have to get broken before we're ready. And I guess that's that was something that happened for me. Well. Um... As you had this epiphany and as you start to come to terms with it um, and you realized you had a mission, when did you start looking at the Bible in a way that had you looking for what we're going to be talking about tonight, secrets that are within the Bible? Yeah, that's a, that was a journey. And, and so, of course, I first started looking into the Bible and studying it, you know, as a, as a layperson would casually for years, but still very interested in why is it 
difficult to understand. And there's a term used in one of Paul's epistles called rightly dividing the word of truth that I adopted and studied for quite a while to sort of figure things out. And while it focused on a narrow way of looking at things, it, it really did help you understand how to compare Scripture with Scripture to get the intent instead of using other people's interpretations. So in that journey, I came to the point where I started to see things opening up that it was like, okay, what if this means exactly what it says, as it says it and where it says it? And we, we t- you mentioned giants in the, in the opening there and, and things like that. There were giants in the Bible. And That's so right. instead of dismissing that and saying, oh, this is one of those things, it's like, no, there's giants. That's, that's huge. That's a thing. You know, let's look into that. And as I began to study those things, I began to find more and more. Help me understand this, because we have, in fact, talked about the Nephilim. We've talked about giants. We've talked about, uh, and, and forgive me if I if I don't have the details exactly correct here, but we've talked about angels uh, coming down and mating with human women and creating the Nephilim and, you know, a whole bunch of things that would be considered very, very foreign to most Christians. However, uh, they are, in fact, there in the Bible. So what is the, what's the prevailing um orthodoxy here when it comes to those passages in the Bible that you are now taking somewhat literally and, and and trying to understand them from a literal sense, what is the other side saying? Are they saying these are just uh, metaphors? What's what's their approach? Well, certainly they, they take an approach that's, that, like you said, orthodox, and, and if they want to dismiss it as a metaphor or a spiritual uh, truth that's not meant to be literally understood, they, they can do that. But when you talk about orthodoxy, you're talking about essentially um, organized religion. And for the most part, I would argue that religion is man-made. So the intent was to sort of get your eyes away from that sort of thing and get you under control, as many organizations try to do, like government and, and religion too. So if they can say, hey, don't pay attention to that story back there in the Old Testament, Noah really didn't build an ark, it's just a metaphor, then it helps you doubt the veracity of the scripture and you're focusing on what you can do for the church or the system. And I think too, it's a means of control, which which I think is also counterproductive. So are, is it your position then that organized religion, religion particularly Christian religion, uh, as we're talking about it and, and relating to the Bible here, uh, is um, how, how to put this delicately, is, <clears throat> is not sincere in its presentation of either the Bible or what they claim to be God's word, God's will, God's uh, messages? I think it can be. It's not to say that they're all the same because you can't make a blanket statement. Uh, you know, I couldn't, you know, and say they're all corrupt. Mm-hmm. But anything, you know, there are good people in government, but I think government is corrupt in its core. You know, there are good people in organized religion, but I think its origins, and if you look at the history, there's a lot of things in there that make me doubt the true intention. Not, it's not to change, the, not to say that the heart of individuals aren't sincere as they worship and as they study and, and, and participate in their organized religion. But sometimes when you look a little bit closer, you see the skeletons in the closet and you see the history of, of an apostate church from the, basically the second century on with things like Gnosticism and whatever other heresies came in. So there, there's a lot to, to, to look at. And then when you, when you, 
let that distract you from what the Bible actually says. It's no wonder so many people say, I, I don't really care for God, I don't really care for religion, because they've sort of been tainted by the, the real picture of religion. I think that's an excellent point and an important one as well. But I do have to ask this as also. Uh, the Bible itself, um, you know, uh, has been presented primarily by the Catholic Church, if my understanding of all of this is accurate, um, and, 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 and edited by the Church, and um, some books were included into the Bible, uh, and some were left out. So at, how, what is the Church's role in what we would consider to be today's, the Bible that we're talking about today, the one that we're going to be referencing tonight? Well, the, the one that I prefer to use myself and have always used is a King James Bible, which mm -hmm. was first published in 1611. Now, that was sort of the antithesis of the Catholic Bible. The Catholics used the Douay Reims, but um, they, had, um, they had no hand in the King James. In fact, tried to stop it from being produced, as, as I understand it historically. Oh, really? Yeah. So uh, it was a, you know, that's one of the things that sort of started what you would call the Protestant thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and and so um, with, the, with the advent of the printing press, the, the Bible got into the hands of the common man, and that was the aim of the King James Bible. When the Catholic Church had more control over kings and people, essentially they kept it written in Latin, and you, you just had to hear what the priests said. You weren't encouraged to read it yourself. So it's a little bit different take. Uh, they, they've changed over the years, obviously. They've modernized and things like that, but that was sort of the original uh, foundation of it. And I think when you say they had more influence over uh, man and kings and, and society, I think that's even uh, putting it mildly. I think they controlled uh, kings and basically all of society during the Middle Ages. Uh, the, the church was the most powerful organization, again, being very uh, conservative in the description uh, that was on the planet at the time. I would agree. There was a time, and we call it the Dark Ages for a reason. Uh, all learning was essentially locked up in the Vatican. And I'm not trying to be an anti-Catholic person when I say these things. It's just historical fact. You right. know, we're just looking right. at those things and saying, "Well, this this is a it's it's like the blight of slavery in American history. It was real. It happened. It was wrong, but it happened." That's absolutely right. So when we talk about secrets in the Bible, are these secrets in plain sight? You know, I think they're not, and I'll tell you why, J.V. The, the Bible is written intentionally, cryptically. God is the one who breathed the words into the men that penned these books uh, over these centuries. But in reality, he did it in such a way that it's perfectly cohesive. But this gets back to what you were saying in the opening about, you know, the, the angelic world and Lucifer and things like that. He had to write it in such a way that Lucifer could not figure out his plan. And Lucifer is an extremely intelligent creature. So it was written in such a way that through the spirit of God, a person can come to understand it through having a relationship with God, and he reveals the truth. So that's where you have to start. And then from there, it takes the study of letting that spiritual guidance bring you to compare the scriptures and dig in there, because you might read a passage and you think, okay, that's all there is about that. But there's another book that also adds to it, and then another passage and another book that adds to it. And if you don't know to search those things out, you can't put them all together to get the full picture. So once you or someone else starts to uncover and decode and, and re resolve these secrets and start to understand the true meanings in the Bible, wouldn't Lucifer, Lucifer by default uh, figure it out as well through us? Yeah. 
Well, exactly. But the thing is, God stays one step ahead of him. So the key thing that he could not know about was actually the, the very first prophecy in the Bible when after, you remember the story of Adam and Eve. Of course, yeah. And after they sinned and ate of the wrong tree, the serpent who was there was cursed. And God told him that, uh, this is like Genesis chapter 3, God said that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. And, of course, he doesn't know who that seed or child is going to be. So he's thinking it could be any male child that's born, and which is why he had Cain kill his brother Abel, uh, because Abel was a good guy. Cain was not. And he's thinking, and, and for the longest time, this is what he's focusing on. He, he either wants to prevent the seed from either being born or kill the seed. What he didn't realize was that the seed would end up being the man Jesus that would be the person that would ultimately have victory. So Satan thought, well, if I kill him, I'll get rid of him. He can't defeat me. And what he didn't understand was God had a plan for the death of Christ to bring redemption that Satan was totally against and had no idea. So he did an in run around him. Um, This stuff is so fascinating. And as we, you know, you peel away the layers of this, this onion, uh, it becomes even more fascinating. Where is the best place to start here to start to tell these stories and and to, to you know uh, pull the curtains back a little bit? Well, believe it or not, I do like to start at the beginning, JV, because what's interesting is that this is almost where universally organized religion starts on the wrong foot because almost everybody knows the first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Right. right that's right. And then the next verse, they kind of say, and here's how he did it. He started with a formless, shapeless mass, and he pulled out of that the dry land and then the this and the that. But that's not at all what the Bible is saying. It's like that first verse was the complete summary of the creation. He doesn't give any details of how he did it, when he did it, just that he did, and God was the one that did it. But that second verse, right after the first one, says, and the earth was without form, and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And so you have to ask yourself, why would God, if he's God, need to start with a mess like that? Why would there be darkness? Why was the earth without form and void? Why is there water? And so then we get into, like, if you start to break that down, you think, well, maybe it's not because he started that way. It's because something happened to the original creation to cause it to become that way, and it's restoration that's taking place in the next passages. I mean, that would change things. That would change things a little bit. I mean, based on what I think would be the common or accepted understanding of, of what those passages mean. Exactly. That, and that's why, again, it's one of those things where religion just sort of says, okay, here's a very simple story. God created the heaven and the earth in six days, and he did it like this. Boom, boom, boom. He started with a mess, and he made it better. But and, and then it's sort of like it's, that's a catechism. You move on and you don't go back and visit that again. But that's not at all what God wanted. From the very beginning, he was trying to say, hey, look here, something happened to my original creation. And what, what you find out that unfolds in the Bible is a story of God created the earth, who knows how long ago, to be inhabited by angels. They sang when he laid the foundation of the earth. They were there to watch him do it. They shouted for joy in the book of Job because he did that. He formed it to be inhabited. He would have had no reason to start with a mess, a formless, shapeless mass. 
So this was their home for untold centuries, perhaps countless eons, and there was an entire civilization of angels on this planet when one of those angels decided he wanted more than just to be a servant. He wanted to be God and replace God. So he convinced a third of those angels on that past earth to join him in a rebellion to take the throne of God. And there was a huge battle, and he lost that battle, but God basically had to pour a divine judgment on that earth, and he flooded it, just like he did with the flood of Noah, only it was before man was ever even made, and men were made to replace those angels. Wow. So what you're saying here, then, is there's a big uh, part of uh, time, if you will, and part of the creation that's left out uh, of that those uh, first uh, chapters of Genesis. So uh, there was the creation of earth and then there was, there were eons where man was not the inhabitants of earth. Is that right? As far as we know, since there's no recorded history of the time you would say, and, and I guess to be technically correct, time began when God started the restoration on the first day. So we can't really call the past of eternity time, but yes, from our perspective, it would be time, and could we don't know how long it was. It could have been 15 minutes. It could have been 15 million years, you know. So uh, we have no idea how long it was, but the other passages in the Bible help you piece it together. And, you know, you go to prophets like Ezekiel, prophets like Isaiah, and you begin to get the picture of a story that's not given all in that first verse of Genesis. So tell us who, who or what angels are. Uh, so that we all have the same understanding. I mean, you know, there's there's a popular culture version of what an angel is, but what mm -hmm. are what are angels as it relates to this this conversation we're having tonight? Absolutely. So angels are created beings, and they're called sons of God in the Bible. Okay, uh, Adam was a son of God too because he was created. He was the first person, and every person since he and Eve have been born. So angels aren't born, they're created, and there's a finite number of them, although it's a vast number according to the Bible. And they're made of a different substance than men. Man is made slightly lower than the angels according to the Bible. So whatever their makeup is, it's a different makeup than human flesh and blood. They must have this ability to uh, venture into different realms. They can take on the form and look like a man. But in the case of a cherub, which is a type of angel, they actually have six wings and four faces. Uh, the face of an ox, a man, a lion, and an eagle. So it would look like a very strange creature to you and I, not your typical beautiful woman angel that you think of in society, you know. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, most when you say angel, uh, you know, the vision that conjures up is a, a winged, beautiful winged creature with a glow, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, and and that's what we think of uh, whenever I think God's angels are, are spoken of. Um but there's more to it than that. And, and, and it sounds to me like these angelic creations of God were intended to be the first uh, occupants of Earth. They, they were, and, and it is very possible, J.V., that things like the pyramids uh, were built there by them. Uh, it's possible that you know, the legends of Atlantis and the Titans and Gilgamesh and whatever from ancient scripts are, are 
trying to remember that distant past through handing down of stories. Uh, and, and there's another scenario about some angels that we'll get into if you have time a little bit later that happened after man was created. But clearly things like the Greeks used to write about Mount Olympus and the battles of the gods and things like that, they're probably referring to that angelic world. And it's just come down and distorted through the centuries by, by you know, what you would call pagan mythology. All right, so I have to ask this then. If, in fact, are those references are to this time that predates mankind, uh, and, and God destroyed that civilization with uh, a flood that was mm-hmm. not Noah's flood, but an earlier flood, uh, how would any of that have survived? How, how would the pyramids have survived any of that stuff? Well, it's very possible that the certain structures could survive a flood with the way they're built. Mm-hmm. The flood was designed to wipe out the inhabitants, okay? And uh, and what, what I think was going on, and we'll get into this thing about gen- genetic manipulation too, because we find out through later uh, passages that Satan attempted to uh, infiltrate the bloodline of man with angel DNA. And now we're talking about those fallen angels. Mm-hmm. So, so of all the angels that were created, a number of them, and it appears to be about one-third, joined this one cherub named Lucifer in the rebellion to take God's throne. So when they were defeated, they came down and apparently tried to destroy or corrupt or pollute the creation that God had originally. I don't doubt there were animals and things like that, that they probably went in and distorted somehow genetically. And therefore, when God saw it, that's not the way he made it. That was not his plan. So he destroyed the living things with the flood. Whatever structures may have been there, had there been there, could have survived, but evidently many of them would have been destroyed. So it's possible that something, say, like a pyramid is designed in such a way that it could have survived a flood. I see. And what would, what happened to the angels? What happened to Lucifer, his one-third of the angels that joined him, and the two-thirds that didn't? Uh, obviously, they weren't mortal, so the flood didn't kill them, right? That's right. So the flood would not kill a, a, a spiritual being like Lucifer and the angels. And the two-thirds that remain faithful to God are still with God. And what we find that there's literally three heavens in the Bible in the book of Genesis chapter 1. There's the first heaven, which would be our atmosphere. There's the starry heavens or the second heaven where the sun, moon, and stars are. And then there's the third heaven where the throne of God is. So the the two-thirds that remain faithful to God remain with him in the third heaven. They come down to the earth whenever they have a purpose and God sends them. But the one-third and Lucifer remain in the starry heavens of the second heaven. That is their abode. People think of the devil as in hell with a pitchfork, but he's not. He's, uh, he doesn't want to go to judgment any more than another person does, but that's where he's destined to go. So he is called the prince of the power of the air, spiritual wickedness in high places. And that's why there's very much a likelihood that when people are seeing UFOs, they're seeing fallen satanic angels involved in some sort of a deceptive scheme. Does Lucifer become more powerful as we, as, as mankind, as people, become followers of him? I don't know that he has any more power because more people follow him. His aim is to thwart or, to, or you know, stop the plan of God or the purpose of God. So one of the things that he failed to do was pre- prevent the seed from being born that would destroy him. So at this point now, he's trying to stop 
the the plan of the seeds redemption so if he can keep as many people from having access to god's redemption that's his focus now he still thinks he can win he ultimately wants to control the earth and and gain control of it in a uh, what we would call the kingdom of heaven but uh he he's so arrogant he thinks he can win even though the bible's already laid out the end of the story and he loses so god destroys earth, rebuilds it, and then puts man on earth uh, to reign over earth. Did man, did God see man as a less uh, dangerous threat than the angels? And that's why uh, he populated ultimately the earth with mankind? Actually, that's a great question. And I think it's almost a, 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 in a way, it could be God's sense of irony or sense of humor, because Lucifer was called the anointed cherub, and he is in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28. He's called the king of Tyrus. But he, every precious stone was his covering. Uh, he was built with, with musical instruments into him. He, he was the brightest creature in heaven, hence the name Lucifer. And when he and he essentially was given like a high position. He was probably the top-ranking created being in God's creation. And then when he rebelled against God, it's as if God said, look here, I can take dirt and do better with them than I did with you. I gave you every advantage. I'm going to take the dust of the earth. I'm going to shape it into a man. I'm going to breathe into it the breath of life. And I'm going to focus all my attention and love on that thing when you could have had it. And I'm going to give it to man. And he truly, because he's God, he can look into the future and see man. And he truly does love us and want us to have a relationship with him. And the devil is trying to thwart that. He does not want God to have us in a relationship. So God creates man. We, we know the story of the Garden, in Eden, uh, Garden of Eden uh, with Adam and Eve. And is it Lucifer that appears as the serpent? Absolutely. He would have been the, soup, the serpent because it's another aspect of him. Uh, he shows up in the book of Revelation, and he's called the, the dragon, the serpent, that old serpent, the devil, and Satan. So it's all the same person. And the, the serpent, incidentally, was a seven-headed dragon. It wasn't a snake wrapped around an apple tree, and it wasn't even an apple tree. <laughs> and how do we know that? How do, how do you know that? Because uh, I've never heard that version. Well, when you uh, look in Revelation chapter 12, the, the Bible literally says in verse 9 that um, – let me pull that up for you so I can quote it exactly. Um, and the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now, J.V., I'm quoting from a passage that is going to be a future war coming, possibly soon. Mm -hmm. But it's pointing back to the fact that the dragon is the old serpent, the devil. He's the same serpent that was in the garden. And in that same chapter in verse 3, he's described as a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. Wow. Um, as Lucifer attempts to corrupt man or Eve uh, and mankind in the Garden of Eden, what, what's, what's uh, God's response? Well, God's response was, of course, from the beginning, he said, you can eat of every tree of the garden except for the one, which was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Mm -hmm. And what a lot of people don't realize is that Adam and Eve were created to be, uh, they were going to live forever, that we would have never died uh, there was something called the tree of life that had they eaten, they would have lived forever. But when they 
when the serpent appeared, he convinced Eve to say, if you eat this tree that God told you not to, he's, first of all, he, he lied. He said, you won't die because God had told him if you eat it, you'll die. Uh, he says, you're not going to die, but God knows you'll be like the gods knowing good and evil. And who were the gods? Well, those were the fallen angels. So Adam and Eve could have seen them. At that time, there was a way they could see the spiritual realm. They weren't flesh and blood as we are now. They were probably flesh and bone, but not in the same way we are today with a, with a body that can die and get sick and old and bald and fat and everything else, you know, like I do. <laughs> so so the, uh, the bodies were perfect. They would have lived forever. But when he said, you can be like the gods, she would have been able to see these gods, which were the fallen angels. So she would have said, okay, I want to be like them. So when she took an eight, that's when sin was introduced into the human race, and then death came as a result of sin. Let's talk about, because I, I know this uh, hour that I have with you is going to go quickly, but I want to talk about the uh, genetic manipulation that you referenced uh, a few minutes ago. Where does this start to enter into the story? Well, it starts when, when the, the, the clear example was in Genesis chapter 6, and that would be with the Nephilim, as you mentioned earlier. So uh, there's an excellent book called The Judgment of the Nephilim by a great um, um, author that I've had on my show named Ryan Peterson. I highly recommend his book. And he goes into great detail about the Nephilim. But what we find is that in Genesis chapter 6, as men began to multiply, there was too many people for the devil to say, okay, I'll kill that guy. He's a good guy. He must be the seed. I'll kill that man. He's a good man. He must be the seed. There were too many. So he came up with an idea. What if I send some of my angels down to earth where they will have to leave their realm, they would have to leave their estate, the Bible calls it. They left their first estate, their own habitation, so that they could take on a physical form for the purposes of procreation. They took wives of the daughters of men because the women were beautiful, and they had giants by them. They were giants on the earth as the children of these uh, sons of God, they're called, fallen angels. So they're hybrid human angel creatures. And it got so bad that the entire bloodline of man was getting corrupted. Satan was thinking, I'll just corrupt the bloodline so that the seed could never be born. And we find in that chapter of Genesis 6 that Noah was chosen because he was perfect in his generations. His bloodline was not tainted. And God says that he would destroy all flesh because all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. So that was the beginning of angelic manipulation of the human race. Stop God's prized possession from being a redeemable entity by turning them into unredeemable entities like hybrid giants and what have you. So the flood of Noah was the uh, event that uh, that uh, uh, destroyed the Nephilim and removed these um, genetic modif genetically modified creatures from Earth? That's exactly right. So the flood was, you know, you think about it, man is pretty wicked with the wars and our history and things like that. So mm -hmm. there's any number of times when you could say, well, God should have been justified in flooding the earth hundreds of thousands of times if man was just bad. But he flooded the earth because of the genetic problem, not just because man was wicked. So 
the uh, the family of Noah was the only one that survived, and two of every kind of animal, which tells you that there was something wrong with the animal creation as well. They were messing with that. And when you think of the mythology and the stories of minotaurs, centaurs, manticores, griffins, who knows? They were probably some based in some form of truth that these angels were manipulating even God's created animal kingdom. So that's why he had to destroy everything except for two of every kind of his original types, two of every kind of animal that he created. So, I mean, I'd have to assume by association here that uh, that none of those genetically modified um, humans, these angelic human hybrids, have survived, and there are none on Earth today? Well, actually, that's another Bible mystery, JV, because there's, and this is uh, dealt with by that same author in the book, Judgment of the Nephilim, but it's, it's in the Bible, and he uses the Bible to prove it. What we find out is an interesting story. After the flood, the world begins again with Noah and his family. He's got three sons and, and his own wife and their wives, so a total of eight people. Ham is one of the sons of Noah. Noah gets drunk passes out after he plants a vineyard. This is after the flood. And Ham does something to him. And when Noah wakes up, he knew what his son did to him. So he doesn't curse Ham, the man that did the thing. He curses Ham's son. And Ham's son, who's Noah's grandson, is named Canaan. Now, Canaan is generally not known for anything in the Bible except for a land called the land of Canaan. Right. And you might know enough about it to know that that was the promised land that God gave Israel. That's right. But when Israel finally did go into that land to conquest it after they were released from bondage in Egypt, you know what they found there? What? Giants. The Canaanites were giants. Not every single individual, but many, many tribes of the Canaanites were giants. So what we've come to glean is that Canaan must have possessed some of that angel DNA that was like a recessive or or latent trait in his mother, Ham's wife. Therefore, when Ham, when Noah cursed Canaan and not his son, why pick on one grandson? What did he do wrong? He never did anything wrong. It's probably because he looked at him and he knew this guy is part giant. And therefore, there were giants in the earth, in the land of Canaan during the conquest with Joshua. And even David fought Goliath, who was, the giants got smaller as time went on. And evidently, they were all, the remnant of the giants were destroyed by the Israelites. And the giants got smaller because they were the the DNA was being diluted. Exactly, they were far removed from their original fathers, who were actual angels. And by the way, those angels—not all of the one third of the fallen angels—did this. Took wives. The ones who did, we don't know the number, but they they were destroyed in the flood too, in a different way. They were put in chains in a bottomless pit, according to the book of Jude and Second Peter. And so, when the other angels their brothers, I guess you could say, saw that judgment upon them, they weren't about to come down and take other wives. So the only possible way that the DNA could have been pushed through the line would have been through the uh, one of the sons of Noah. We're talking tonight with uh, Pastor Scott Mitchell. Uh, Scott is uh, a podcast host. Also, Scott, you have a book coming out about this, don't you? Right. It's in the works right now. It's going to be talking in great detail about that angelic world. And the working title right now is The World That Was. And it's expected to be released in 2021. That's what you hope? That is my hope. 
And you also have a podcast, Bible uh, Bible Mysteries podcast. Where can people hear that? Well, they can uh, subscribe with any one of the podcast apps like Spotify or Apple or, or any of those. And then we have a website, uh, which is it's a Captivate website. So um, the best way for people to get to the resources, because it's easier to remember, is just to go to my main website, which is utbnow.com. And UTB is short for Unlock the Bible. And we're talking about the secrets of the Bible tonight with Scott. And I have to ask this before we continue uh, talking about these details. But um, are the secrets just uh, uh, about uh, regarding the historical nature of the Bible, or is it is is it also forward looking? Are these secrets giving us a plan moving forward as well? Absolutely, it's forward thinking. That's one amazing thing to me about the Bible and all the years I've been studying it is that it's it's timeless, you know. And I mentioned the coming war in heaven in the book of Revelation. Well, that's that hasn't occurred yet. Right. Um, there's any number of things that are going to be fulfilled that have yet to be fulfilled. And there's a fascinating study about a, a prophecy in the book of Daniel that involves something called 70 weeks. And there's 69 of those weeks are already now history, but the 70th week is future. And that's kind of where everything in the Bible hinges around. So one of the things that's going to happen in this war that takes place is God's angels are going to engage Lucifer and his angels in a final battle. They're going to be cast out of the second heaven down to the earth where they will remain. So we'll see them. They'll no longer be in that spiritual habitation. They'll be physical as you and I are, at least in the sense that they're, they're no longer able to fly away, so to speak. So when, they, when they're cast out of heaven and they come down, it's not like the devil's going to admit and say, I lost the battle and here I am. He's a liar, so he's got to come up with a story. And the likely story that I believe is going to be taking place is angels have these crafts, and they're seen in the book of Ezekiel, so there's no reason to doubt that Lucifer doesn't have some too. They'll probably appear and claim to be aliens from a distant planet that originally seeded human DNA with their DNA when we were monkeys or something to give credence to, I guess, evolution. And they're going to say, we've returned to help you under your next phase of evolution. And that's going to be the big deception that seems to be coming. I think the, the, the societies of the world are getting us prepared for that. Yeah, I was going to ask, it's, you know, we talk a lot about uh, UFO activity and alien activity on this program. And there's this, you know, this buzz phrase called, uh, you know, um, uh, slow disclosure. Uh, we're starting to see these drips of disclosure by the U.S. government, other governments, and other other organizations. Is this first of all? Are they involved? Or are they duped? And secondly, is this what you're talking about? As the preparation, this this kind of laying the groundwork. I think they are involved, and and I'll tell you what I base this on. It's it's a, a passage that a lot of people are familiar with in the Bible. It's in the book of Luke, and a lot of people know that when Jesus was a man on the earth, he was uh, he fasted forty days and was tempted in the wilderness for forty days by the devil. And one of those temptations was that the devil took him up into a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said, all this power and glory will I give you if you'll worship me. It's delivered to me. I can give it to whoever I will. If you'll worship me, all will be yours. Well, of course, Jesus rejected his offer, and he said, get thee behind me, Satan. But he didn't rebuke the truth of the statement 
that the kingdoms of the world are in the power of the devil to deliver to whomsoever he will. I believe that that is my political philosophy, that the powerful, the rich, the governments of the world are controlled by Satan, probably with their knowledge if they're in the higher upper echelons in, in the what you might call the global satanic elite. And they are manipulating these things. We're, we're seeing a consolidation of all media, all corporations, sort of kind of getting into the handful of people that own them. We see uh, trillionaires out there that are secrets. They, not like the Bill Gateses of the world and the George Soros billionaires. They have more money than those guys have. And they can manipulate nations. And I think what we're seeing is the paradigm is starting to shift. The release of information of classified documents, it's becoming clear that we can no longer explain away as swamp gas and weird light phenomenon these crafts that are flying around. And then when you've got things like the pandemic and whatnot that are tightening down on the, uh, the government's rule and control over us, it's probably all adding up to a, a phase that's coming, and I think it's coming very shortly. Is all of that, what you just outlined, is, is that uh, in the Bible, if you know how to find it? It really is, and it's not overt, it's not obvious, but we know that there's a strong delusion that's coming. The Apostle Paul wrote about it, and we know that there is uh, this battle coming, so Lucifer's going to lose and end up on the earth. That's when he is walking around as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, according to the, the Second Peter. So these things, we've looked at them and always seen them as metaphors, and I'm trying to show people that, you know, they're not metaphors. The Bible the Bible can use metaphoric language. It can use poetic language, but it, it means what it says. So when we talk about these strange locust-like creatures coming out of the bottomless pit, there's a tendency for some theologians to try to translate that as modern weaponry, like a, like a Stinger Apache helicopter or something like that. But what if it's really just a crazy demonic locust with lion's teeth and a scorpion's tail? You know, what if it's really a demonic creature out of the bottomless pit and the Bible said exactly what it means? So that's the way I'm trying to approach things. When you uh, read through the Bible and you read it from the perspective of how you're presenting it tonight and you're seeing things in there that maybe haven't been taught to us or interpreted the way you're interpreting them at least uh, in public, um, mm -hmm. are you? Uh, do you ultimately have hope, or are you quite afraid? No, I have great hope, and that's the best thing about all of this. Um, you know, when God talks about redemption, it's it's the term people use is salvation, and sometimes people say it and they don't really know what they mean. You, you ever had somebody ask you, "Are you saved?" You know. And it becomes such a nebulous thing. It's sort of like a, a catchword or a buzz phrase. But in, in reality, there's, there's a meaning behind that because what we're talking about is there has been a time of grace from God's perspective on the earth where men are allowed to be as wicked as they want to be, short of uh, accountability through, you know, judgment like um like you know you get arrested for robbing a bank and you go to jail so that you know you can get caught sometimes people don't get caught but god's not burning cities up like sodom and gomorrah he's not flooding the world like the days of noah he's allowing men to go along as they are but he's calling them to him and he's saying if you will believe my truth you can be saved from a coming wrath 
So the raft that is coming is what I'm trying to get people to understand that the hope is you don't have to go through this time of wrath. People talk about the mark of the beast. We can talk about the coming alien exposure or whatever they might do, whatever the delusion is, and all those things that could come to be fulfilled from Scripture. The hope is that there's a Savior, there's a person that you can have a relationship with that will allow you to escape that coming wrath, and that happens to be the person, Jesus Christ. Does, you know, we've seen uh, quite a uh, a move away from uh, religion, particularly Christian religion in this country, and I think through most of the Western world. Um, it seems to be accelerating at times. Is that, first of all, at all of concern to God? And secondly, is that part of Lucifer's work? Well, it's both. It's it's a concern of God because his desire is that all men come to this saving knowledge. He wants all men to have this relationship with him. And obviously Satan doesn't. But he predicted in his scriptures that the last days there would be perilous times. And perilous means dangerous, but it's not just like, you know, dangerous like it's not safe to walk down the street. Mm-hmm. It, it's, a, it's a word that's very strong in the original Greek. It's like a raving lunatic dangerous. You know, so we're we're closely approaching that when you see things like the crazy riots that we've had this year and the destruction of property and arson and stuff. And it's going all over the world. It's not just in the United States. So I think we're approaching a time of men being so seared in their conscience that there's no longer any natural affection or care for man. You know, you see the left right paradigm in this country and probably in other countries, too. You see, we're trying to be divided along racial lines, along political lines, along religious lines. All of this is a distraction to keep your eyes focused away from the spiritual battle because the devil doesn't want you to see what he's doing. It's like a magician doing a trick with his left hand while you're looking at his right hand. And so all of this is is intended to distract you, and the governments are behind it. There's a, like I mentioned, a satanic global elite that are very much fomenting and funding this because they actually do worship the devil. They're they're actually believers that Lucifer can win this battle, and they want to be one of his top dogs. Let's talk about the governments for a moment again. Um, At what level of the government is their complicity? Does the president, and I don't mean this this specific president, I mean any president of the United States, have knowledge of this and are they in on it? Or is this a level of shadow government or, um, you know, a world government or something that that is actually uh, above what we would consider to be uh, the president's level and uh, they're somehow pulling puppet strings? I'm with you on the latter. I think, uh, JV, I would have to agree with you that it's got to be something above the level of even a president or a prime minister or king, because if if at some point somebody would have had to have a conscience enough to say, you know, I I mean, I may have been a bad guy while I was a president, but I got to let you know there's something going on here, you know, and, and you would have to think there's other people of high levels of government that would have spilled the beans, too. So 
it is more likely some very secretive people that control essentially the money system of the world because that's where the power is. So it's it's going to be more likely the, the the ones who own things like the IMF and the Federal Reserve Bank, which are private banks. It's going to be people that control and have had control for possibly centuries. They could be families that have been around for centuries. And so there's almost like a a royal lineage, if you will. And I don't know any names. I couldn't name a name. It's not going to be a Bush or a, or an Obama or a Trump or a Clinton. It's not going to be one of those. It's going to be something way above them. And they are, in fact, the puppets. Okay. You mentioned uh, something that I think is a, a very serious problem, but uh, maybe not for the same re- reasons. And this, the, this consolidation in tech and their control of information you referenced that. Does that mean that a, a Mark Zuckerberg and you know people of his level or class are somehow involved as well, or are they two puppets? I believe they're probably puppets as well, but they may be higher up the ladder. They may be higher up the food chain because of their wealth. Because when you think about a person like Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation, mm-hmm. you know this this is a man that is a Malthusian. He believes in population control and has for for many decades. So and and he's not an expert on epidemiology by any stretch <laughs> of the tried, imagination. He tries to pretend he is. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And so why is suddenly he in this position to to do these things? And when you look at the things that he funds, almost everything is very is very either socialistic in nature, globalistic in nature, and and ultimately designed to reduce the population of the earth. He, I'm just using as an as an example. I don't know Bill Gates and right, I have no sure. bone to pick with him, but sure. I think that but there's something about these tech giants that seems to be consolidating power in the hands of a very few. When you think about the fact that 20 to 30 years ago, there were over 300 different media outlets in this nation alone. That's right. And today there's only six. You know, that's an amazingly important point you just made, because I actually I actually just had this very conversation with my son earlier tonight. I don't remember exactly what we were talking about, but I had pointed out and, and as a radio station owner myself, I used to own stations. Um, I recognize that the media landscape has changed. And, you know, you could in any town find three or four newspapers, you know, uh, 20 or 30 radio stations, 15 television stations, and most of them were independently owned and offered a different perspective. All of that is gone. And now, exactly. now we have a have Facebook where it seems to be the, the most common source people get their information or they type something into Google. I mean, 80, 90 percent of all information flows through Google and Google decides what they're what you're going to see in here. Exactly. And, you know, there's a there's a British comedy that used to be on called the IT crowd. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I absolutely have. Yes. It's one of my favorite shows, and and the two nerdy guys in the basement, you know, are always talking about, you know, have you tried turning it off and turning it on again? <laughs> but they they play a trick on their boss one time where they give her a little box with a light on it, and they tell her it's the internet, and uh, and they told her that she had permission to use it from the elders of the internet. And sometimes I think that when when they make jokes about that, there probably are elders of the internet, you know, mm-hmm. somewhere. There's probably some people that are truly able to control it, shut it down. Uh, uh, and and you're seeing it sort of in real time with the with the censorship on Twitter, the censorship in Facebook, and and all that kind of stuff. I, I think there's something happening there that we're we're sort of we're getting. It's like boiling the frog slowly. We're getting so used to it, we don't realize that we should be shocked and outraged at this. Yeah. Um, 
when we talk about people who might be at the very top of this elite, the people who, as you put it, and, and I'll paraphrase you, you said they want to, you know, they want to part, they want to be um, Satan's allies because they want a part of what remains after this, you know, this war that they expect Satan to win, obviously. Um, do those people, uh, are they the same type of people that we might run into? We've had people on the program that say, I, I'm a Satan worshiper. Is it, or are those people just kind of ancillary? And I'm talking about the, 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 someone who would come on this program and say, I'm a Satan worshiper. You know, to answer that question, I'm going to pro- pull in an outside resource, and, and I'm going to give it for your listeners and yourself as a reference. If you've never heard of it, there is an excellent website called VigilantCitizen.com. And the, I don't know who runs it or owns it, but he does an excellent job of exposing the symbolism of the occult elite. And he sees it in media, he sees it in culture, he, he explains it, he, under, you know, he, he really references it well. And, and one of the things he did was he basically said that the movie uh, Eyes Wide Shut mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with, with Tom, Cruise. Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman was sort of an inside glimpse into the real upper echelon world of the satanic global elite. And uh, I remember watching the movie and not really getting it, and it seemed odd and strange to me. But when I looked at it through the lens of him saying it was essentially an interpretation, and I think the guy that wrote the screenplay was like killed in unusual circumstances or something like that. So uh, it's one of those things where there's probably – we think that they're actually starting to get bold and come out of the shadows, and they're starting to put their signature on everything because symbolism means everything to these people. And their whole aim is to bring – is to create the chaos so they can bring order out of the chaos and become the saviors of, of mankind. And they, they have these symbols that we don't have time to get into, but it's amazing if you'll check out that reference, VigilantCitizen.com. Always comes back to Stanley Kubrick, doesn't it? Sometimes it seems to, yeah. I mean, we, we talk about uh, moon landing hoax. We talk about, and Stanley Kubrick has his uh, hands in so many of these things. Or not necessarily his hands, but he seems to have known things that maybe others didn't know, and he's trying to tell some stories here. Um, Let's bring this back to, uh, because we are we are going to run out of time. I can already see that. Uh, so many questions and, and not enough time to get to them all. But we, we keep talking about the wrath. Mm-hmm. You, um, I'm, I'm sure you can't give us a date. But based on what you're seeing in the world today, based on what you know of what the Bible is telling us, and specifically you because you've learned to read it and interpret it a little differently, uh, when can we expect this to occur? So we don't know the date, and there are no specific date giving because it culminates in what the Bible, uh, it, the, the central theme of the Bible is the return or second coming of Jesus Christ. So he says of that day and that hour knows no man. So we can't predict. We have no idea. But there's some clues in the Bible, and, and to try to make a, a very um, complex uh, subject as as simple and short as possible, we have lived on this planet for the last 2,000 years in a time period the Bible refers to as a mystery. It's called the dispensation of grace. And it's not really accounted in the prophetic timetable of the Daniel 70 weeks. So um, without getting into a whole lot of detail, essentially after Christ was crucified, the clock stopped 
on the 70-week prophecy. 69 of the weeks were fulfilled at his death. A 2,000-year gap has existed, and the 70th week will begin as the wrath. It's called the seven years of tribulation, the wrath of God, the time of Jacob's trouble. And we don't know when that day is going to begin, but here's what we do know. So the Bible says in the book of Peter that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now, that is definitely a metaphor, but it's a formula for something. And the way we see it is it's a picture. Everything God does is in types in the Bible. So he recreates the earth in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. From Adam to Christ was 4,000 years of history. From Christ to today has been about 2,000 years of history, or six days. Four plus two, 4,000, 2,000, 6,000, six days. The seventh day is the final reign of Jesus on the earth. It's a thousand-year reign of Christ. It's the Sabbath or seventh day. So if we look at it from that perspective, is it possible that if Christ was crucified in 33 A.D., that year, then the year 2033 could be 2,000 years exactly from the point at which Christ died? And could it be that the timetable of the final seven years begins again shortly after that or somewhere in that range? I think we're possibly that close. I'm probably way off in the years, but that's just a formula that the Bible gives us to get some idea, but not down to the day or the hour or even the month or year. Okay, and let's take this a step further. Again, you know, this is just your interpretation, and there's no solid answers here. But again, I want your opinion. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned the riots. You mentioned the pandemic. Uh, there are things like the climate change agenda, which scares me, especially now that uh, the governments in the United States have recognized they can use, quote-unquote, science to justify unbelievable controls on our on our activities and our even our thoughts. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're seeing a lot of things change very, very rapidly. Uh, does this give you some kind of uh, reason to take pause and say, hey, we are close? It really does. And quite frankly, JV, it's the reason I started Bible Mysteries podcast, because I think we are close. You know, you're, I'm, the, I'm the pastor of a small Bible church in a small town in Texas. So I reach a handful of people every week. But with a podcast, I can reach thousands, and, and now we're in something like 35 countries. So clearly, the mechanism of uh, getting a message out to more people is, is uppermost in my mind right now, because I do think we're closing in on those times by just, just by uh, nature of the things you mentioned just now, the, the list of items you just mentioned that seem to be showing these changes in a very rapid direction. I need to uh, clarify something for our chat room here. There was a question about the timetable that you presented, talking about the 4,000 years and the 2,000 years. Is it, it's my understanding, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, which I very well could be, that the 4,000 years is determined through uh, lineage, through genealogy? It is, through the genealogy of Christ back to Adam. So, yeah, I was seeing in the chat, too, that it's, it's not that I'm trying to tell you the earth has only existed for 6,000 years. The Bible only records history of mankind for right. 6,000 years. 
So when we were talking earlier about the angelic world, whatever the, whatever the fossil record is showing of the age of the earth probably has more to do with that time than man's time. Now, people might think man's been around for 50,000 years or 100,000 years. I disagree with that. And one of the other things we have to recognize, too, is, and, and you pointed this out, that time might have a different meaning uh, when we talk about God's years versus human years. Well, not that much. I mean, God's year is a 360-day year. It's a lunar calendar, and we have a solar calendar. So you can sort of adjust for that and, and factor it in and get, get close to the same time. Okay. But the formula I was talking about, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, is more of an understanding of prophetic timetable than it is. It's not to say that God used 6,000 years uh, for six days of creation, because I don't believe he did. They were 24-hour days when he restored the earth in Genesis chapter 1. Let's um, let, let's talk a minute about UFOs. You know, these UFO sightings have, have you know, been very common throughout the 20th century into the 21st. Um, when somebody now, based on what we've been talking about tonight, has a UFO sighting, what, what are they actually seeing in your in your opinion? Well, in my opinion, they're seeing something that's a craft used by these fallen angels. In the book of Ezekiel, in both chapter 1 and chapter 10, the prophet Ezekiel saw God's cherubs, good good angels, uh, come down in these wheel-like crafts. And he described it as, you know, a wheel within a wheel, and uh, and, and it went on its side. So when you think about a, a, a you know, 400, 500 B.C. prophet, um, describing something flying in the air and it being round and on its side, I picture like the wheel of a cart, the wheel of a chariot. Mm-hmm. And instead of being upright as we see a tire on a car, lay it on its side and then cause it to float. So he could have been describing what we might describe as a UFO. He also makes reference uh, in the Bible, in the book of Zechariah, to a flying ephah and a flying roll, which is a scroll of, of a book. So there's different shapes to these things. But in the case of Ezekiel, he sees these wheels, and the cherubs are within the wheels, and the wheels move where the cherub goes. So you try to put in the perspective what a a guy would describe as a UFO so many centuries ago, and that could be what he was seeing. So I take it from that that they have this technology. It was given them by God, and the fallen angels had the knowledge to create that technology themselves. So while they're probably not aliens, and I don't believe there are really aliens, they're extraterrestrial in the sense that they dwell in the heavens and they travel in these crafts. They're probably on the earth somewhere, and for all we know, they come up out of the sea. They come from a secret base in Antarctica. I mean, (laughs) who knows what? (laughs) And that brings up a whole lot of questions about the government involvement, because why don't we ever go to Antarctica? You know, what's really down there? So there's there's a lot of secrets to that, too. Well, we actually just had a conversation in relationship to a different topic about the Antarctic Treaty, which prohibits all nations from visiting and spending, you know, going... I know more than just a superficial amount uh, uh, of distance into the interior of Antarctic. So that, that, um, that raises a lot of questions in itself. We are almost out of time here. So let's, let's bring this down to maybe what the million dollar question is. What does this mean for us, Scott? What does it mean that maybe we've been misinterpreting some of the messages of the Bible? Uh, and then as we start to understand them and we start to learn its true meaning, what does that change for us? Well, I think what it boils down to is 
God has given the record of himself in the Bible. If it's not true, he's not God and he's not worthy of our worship. So if we don't have a reliable book that says this is God, this is who he is, then I, I'm not going to waste my time with him. He's, then he doesn't exist, you know. So I believe it's true, and I believe he does exist. And I believe the Bible is a record of himself, and he has a right to give the account of himself in the same way you do in a court of law. You know, if I said, you know, uh, I think JV is a, is a beautiful young woman, that's hearsay in a court of law. You have a right to say, no, I'm right here. I'm not a beautiful young woman. I'm a man. So uh, in a court of law, we, don't, we, we give people more um, uh, I guess, uh, license than we give to God, you know, credibility. So we need to tell, we need to accept God that he has to get, have a right to speak for himself. So the devil, of course, is the guy that wants to deceive us. He's the one that doesn't want us to believe God's record of himself. Therefore, God's record of himself, if it's true, then the Bible has to be it. It, it can be understood through his spirit and the only way you can have that spirit is to have a relationship with God. So the, the key takeaway I want everybody to understand is you don't need religion. You don't need regulations. You don't need tenets of man and a creed and this or that. Other. What you need is a relationship with God. You need to know that you have access to God, the creator, and he made that access possible through his son. So the only way, the only hope that humanity has is to believe on the son that God provided as a sacrifice for mankind. Once you've done that, you're delivered from the wrath to come. And that's the key thing. We don't want to be going through that time. I don't want to live in the time when I would be deceived to take the mark of the beast. We escape that through simply trusting on his son as our own salvation, as our own Lord. And what do you say to someone who says God doesn't exist, uh, none of this is real, uh, it's all a fabrication of man, and I don't, um, I don't believe any of it? What do, you, what do you say to that person? You know, that's a, that's a hard nut to crack because if they've made their mind up about that, I'm not going to try to convince them otherwise. Uh, the Bible actually has a passage that says, if any man will be ignorant, let him be ignorant. So I think when a person, I don't think the, the truth of the scripture is something you can force on anybody. Uh, you know, Bible beaters, that to me does not do any good. Um, I'm more interested in building bridges than I am building walls. So I just lay it out there. It's there for someone to receive it or not. You can lay the table, but you can't make a meet. So I tell them that is fine if you want to believe that, but just understand that if you're wrong, you'll face a day when you'll have to give an account for why you rejected him, and that's on you. So that's all I can share with them. Scott, it's been a fascinating discussion. You present all of this information in a way that's um, easy to understand. Well, not necessarily easy because none of this is necessarily easy, but certainly easier to understand and certainly compelling. Uh, once again, let people know how they can find your podcast, your website, and all the things that they would need to find if they want to follow up on your work. You bet. It's been a real privilege, and I'm so grateful that you have me today, JV. The website uh, to get to everything that we do is utbnow.com. Uh, UTB is short for Unlock the Bible Now. You can access our, our YouTube channel, our Twitter, our Facebook, our LinkedIn. We've got uh, the podcast. You can click on there to, uh, to go directly to the website for the podcast, or you can subscribe through your own podcast apps. Just search for Bible Mysteries, and we're there. Uh, 
and you can also um, listen to uh, audio recordings of Bible lessons I've done over the years. Quite a collection are up on our website there, too. Terrific. I look forward to having you back on the program at some point. It's been a great conversation, and I want to do it again sometime. I'm happy to do it, JV, and once again, it's been an honor. Thank you. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.